I am simply arguing that if we are to have values at all, we must accept the ultimate platitudes of practical reason as having absolute validity, that any attempt, having become skeptical about these, to reintroduce value lower down on some supposedly more realistic basis is doomed. Whether this position implies a supernatural origin for the Tao is a question I am not here concerned with. Yet, how can the modern mind be expected to embrace the conclusion we have reached? This Tao, which, it seems, we must treat as an absolute, is simply a phenomenon like any other. The reflection upon the minds of our ancestors, of the agricultural rhythm in which they lived, or even of their physiology. We know already, in principle, how such things are produced. Soon, we shall know in detail. Eventually, we shall be able to produce them at will. Of course, while we did not know how minds were made, we accepted this mental furniture as a datum, even as a master. But many things in nature, which were once our masters, have become our servants. Why not this? Why must our conquest of nature stop short, in stupid reverence, before this final and toughest bit of nature, which has hitherto been called the conscience of man? You threaten us with some obscure disaster if we step outside it. But we have been threatened in that way by obscurantists at every step in our advance, and each time the threat has proved false. You say we shall have no values at all if we step outside the Tao. Very well, we shall probably find that we can get on quite comfortably without them. Let us regard all ideas of what we ought to do simply as an interesting psychological survival. Let us step right out of all that and start doing what we like. Let us decide for ourselves what man is to be and make him into that, not on any ground of imagined value, but because we want him to be such. Having mastered our environment, let us now master ourselves and choose our own destiny. This is Men with Chest, the podcast that pursues objective truth, goodness, and beauty, where we go back to the great books that made the West and give warning to the fate that awaits mankind should we not cultivate virtue. Hello and welcome back. Today we are going to complete chapter two in The Abolition of Man. Last week, when we left off, we had covered the two options of uh, either trying to stand inside or outside the Tao, the natural law, and to make progress from that position. And Lewis had pointed out that we are capable of making advancements, of progressing, uh, when it is the case that we are firmly standing within the Tao, that we are inside the Tao, and then trying to uh, improve upon the perhaps contradictory principles that different cultures will hold about the Tao itself. And he gave that example of uh, the Confucian statement, uh, do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you, and point out how then the Christian statement which was do as you would be done by. That is a real advance. That is a real progress. And it's taking place from within the Tao. And that is in sharp contrast to the attempt to make progress by completely removing ourselves from the Tao itself and to say, we are now going to be the beings that create values as we see fit. And that's the, the whole Nietzschean idea of the Ubermensch, the beings that are going to tell us what we ought to do. 
All right, so that is where we left off with last week's episode. And before we get into this week's, just a reminder that if this is your first episode, go back and begin with episode one. I'm tracking through the entirety of The Abolition of Man. So each episode is building off the previous one, and you really have to take them all in in the order in which I'm putting them out. All right, so we're picking up here. This is page 59 in my copy. Those who understand the spirit of the Tao and who have been led by that spirit can modify it in directions which that spirit itself demands. So that's just uh, affirming you know, the same kind of stuff that we covered last week that I just summarized. Only they can know what those directions are. The outsider knows nothing about the matter. So the outsider, um, meaning the guy who's trying to stand outside of the Tao, the natural law. His attempts, the outsider, his attempts at alteration, as we have seen, contradict themselves. So far from being able to harmonize a discrepancy in its letter by penetration to its spirit, he merely snatches at some one precept on which the accidents of time and place happen to have riveted his attention, and then rides it to death for no reason that he can give. So uh, that sentence there where he said, uh, so far from being able to harmonize discrepancy in its letter, meaning the natural law's letter, by penetration to its spirit, meaning you're trying to um, harmonize these little discrepancies like like that example with the uh, Confucian do not do to others versus the Christian do as you would be done by. So that there's an example where we are trying to penetrate to its spirit and we're harmonizing discrepancies. Uh, the guy who's standing without outside the Tao, he cannot do that. All right, continuing. From within the Tao itself comes the only authority to modify the Tao. This is what Confucius meant when he said, with those who follow a different way, it is useless to take counsel. So if you're trying to uh, take advancements, make advancements on a particular path, then it's totally useless to take counsel from somebody who's on a different path. Uh, they are just in a completely different position. Continuing, this is why Aristotle said that only those who have been well brought up can usefully study ethics. To the corrupted man, the man who stands outside the Tao, the very starting point of this science is invisible. And in an earlier episode when we were on chapter one, we covered that passage that Aristotle is making this point, and I think we talked about it with uh, Dr. Marcos as well. So I'm gonna I'm not gonna go into the Nicomachean ethics and cover that again here, but you can look back to the episodes in chapter one where I covered Aristotle. He may be hostile, but he cannot be critical. So the guy who's standing without the Tao, he may be hostile, but he cannot be critical. He does not know what is being discussed. This is why it was also said. This people that knoweth not the law is accursed, and he that believeth not shall be damned. So that first quote there, this people that knoweth not the law is accursed. That comes from uh, John chapter 7, verse 49. And the background to this verse is that the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body amongst the Jews at the time of Jesus' life, uh, he, they sent out these officers to go and check out what Jesus was doing. You know, they're trying to get him. They're trying to catch him. And the officers, they come back to the Sanhedrin 
And the uh, Sanhedrin says, um, you know, why didn't you bring Jesus? You're supposed to get this guy. And the officers say that uh, no man ever spoke like this man. This is verse 46. And the Pharisees then answered and they say, are you led astray? You also? And then the Sanhedrin tells the officers that the crowd, they, they are the people who do not know the law. And so they are accursed. And so that's the quote that Lewis is using there. And Lewis gives a footnote where he explains himself for using this quote. He says, the speaker said it in malice, meaning the Sanhedrin. They said that to the officers in malice, but with more truth than they meant. So the Sanhedrin, even though they were speaking those words to their own officers in malice, there was more truth in it than they meant. And that truth is that this idea of being within the law is necessary. You must be within the Tao, the natural law, or else you are accursed. That's that's the point that Lewis is making. And then he gives that second passage where he says, he that believeth not shall be damned. And that comes from Mark 16, 16, from the second half of that verse, where it says, this is the RSV, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And Lewis is using this passage loosely because uh, he's not talking here about necessarily believing in the gospel message and uh, being saved because of that. He, he's talking about to stand within or without the natural law. And he's just using this to uh, illustrate this idea that to not believe in the natural law is to stand outside or to attempt to stand outside it. Uh, that ultimately means you are condemned. That's the point. He's saying that it's just a position where you are essentially damning yourself. He goes on to write that an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful, but an open mind about the ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or of practical reason is idiocy. So practical reason, remember that was that intellectus, that ability to perceive the first principles, which is the thing that perceives therefore the natural law. Okay, and then theoretical, so theoretical reason. Practical reason was the intellectus, theoretical reason. Uh, you could think of that as that logical aspect where you had the ratio. And um, the first principles or the foundations for something that would relate to that, you could think of just mathematical proofs. You know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Uh, to, to be open-minded about that is not useful. That's just to be an idiot. So that's why he says that uh, an open mind about the ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or of practical reason, is idiocy. If a man's mind is open on these things, let his mouth at least be shut. He can say nothing to the purpose. Outside the Tao, there is no ground for criticizing either the Tao or anything else. So if you apply that to that math example, too, you know, we're talking about theoretical reason, uh, then... You could see how, you know, if you are trying to stand outside of math and say that two plus two equals well, whatever I want it to be or something like that, well, then that is just pure idiocy. And then no uh, critique from that particular person is worthwhile. You, you can't actually even make any sort of critique because you just moved yourself outside of the whole enterprise itself. You've just stood outside of the mathematical field and so anything you say is just utterly useless. All right, continuing with the text. In particular instances, it may, no doubt, 
be a matter of some delicacy to decide where the legitimate internal criticism ends and the fatal external kind begins. See their uh, internal and external, so within and without. This is a recurring theme. It's coming up again and again and again. All right, but wherever any precept of traditional morality is simply challenged to produce its credentials as though the burden of proof lay on it, we have taken the wrong position. The legitimate reformer endeavors to show that the precept in question conflicts with some precept which its defenders allow to be more fundamental, or that it does not really embody the judgment of value it professes to embody. The direct frontal attack, why? What good does it do? Who said so? Is never permissible, not because it is harsh or offensive, but because no values at all can justify themselves on that level. If you persist in that kind of trial, you will destroy all values, and so destroy the bases of your own criticism, as well as the thing criticized. You must not hold a pistol to the head of the Tao, nor must we postpone obedience to a precept until its credentials have been examined. Only those who are practicing the Tao will understand it. It is the well-nurtured man, the qua gentil, which is the gentleman, and he alone, who can recognize reason when it comes. It is Paul, the Pharisee, the man perfect as touching the law, who learns where and how that law was deficient. So that paragraph, Lewis is once again reiterating the importance of accepting as self-evident the first principles of the natural law, what he's calling the Tao. Uh, because if you try to, you know, continue to ask why, 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 right? What good does it do? Who said so? You know, you continue to ask these cynical questions about these first principles. You ultimately put yourself in a position where you have to be skeptical of everything. You can't know anything. It's an infinite regress of skepticism. All right. And in the last couple sentences I just read there, Lewis references Plato and he references the Pharisee Paul. And because I didn't dive into this particular passage from Plato earlier, uh, though I skipped over the Aristotle one because we dove into that in a earlier episode, I'm going to cover the Plato one here. So this comes from Plato's Republic, and we're in book three, or 402a in that old school notation. And this is a passage where um, Socrates is talking here. And they're talking about the rearing of a child so that they have the well-ordered soul in their earliest days so that when they obtain their reasoning faculties, they are going to welcome those faculties with open arms. And uh, this is the passage. So this is Socrates talking. So Glaucon, I said, isn't this why the rearing in music is most sovereign? Because rhythm and harmony most of all insinuate themselves into the inmost part of the soul and most vigorously lay hold of it in bringing grace with them. And they make a man graceful if he is correctly reared, if not the opposite. Furthermore, it is sovereign because the man properly reared on rhythm and harmony would have the sharpest sense for what's been left out and what isn't a fine product of craft or what isn't a fine product of nature. And due to his having the right kind of dislikes, he would praise the fine things, and taking pleasure in them, and receiving them into his soul, he would be reared on them and become a gentleman. He would blame and hate the ugly in the right way while he's still young. 
before he's able to grasp reasonable speech. And when reasonable speech comes, the man who's reared in this way would take most delight in it, recognizing it on account of its being akin. Now, reasonable speech there from that passage, that is the Greek word logos. And Lewis is referencing this passage because this passage is talking about the well-ordered child who uh, is trained to like what is likable and dislike what is dislikable before they have that reasonable speech, that logos, reason. And once they have that, because they've had that proper rearing, the point is that they will then recognize reason as just confirming those first principles that they had instilled in them before they had obtained their own reasoning faculties. So to repeat the line that Lewis wrote, he said, It is the well-nurtured man, the qua gentil, the gentleman, and he alone, who can recognize reason when it comes. And of course, Plato saw music, and muses is the, the Greek there. It's more than just music, like a, like a song. It has to do with um, poetry, rhyme, fictional stories. It's a lot more than just music, but music, as we understand it, is a part of that. And Plato saw that as being a key piece of how to properly orient the soul in those early days, because we are so moved by those emotional things, whether it's music itself, or it's a particular uh, fictional story that hits us in the heart. Those emotional training pieces help to form our soul either in the right orientation or the wrong orientation before we've obtained our reason. Then Lewis gives that example from Paul the Pharisee. He says, it is Paul the Pharisee, the man perfect as touching the law, who learns where and how that law was deficient. So Paul being the Pharisee, the guy who received all this training within the Jewish law at that time, and he was uh, perfect in terms of his following of that law. And I guess you'd probably just say as perfect as you could be. Of course, he wasn't actually completely unblemished as if he never made any sort of mistake, but you, you get the point. He was somebody who took that law extremely seriously and knew that law in and out. And Lewis is using that passage from Paul or that story about Paul to illustrate that Paul is somebody who is standing within the law, within the Tao. And therefore, um, because of that standpoint within, he can see deficiencies in the law and real advancement is possible then from that position. I'm going to read here Romans 7, uh, 7b uh, through 8. Uh, this is a good example, good illustration of this idea of having been brought up in the law and the importance of that. Paul writes, If it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said you shall not covet. So that's the same kind of idea from that passage from Plato. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. So apart from the law, without, to be without the Tao, without the natural law, then sin lies dead because there is no such thing as sin if there is no natural law. And that just points out how ludicrous this idea is of trying to get outside the Tao, simply because we all realize that there 
are such things that are objectively wrong and things that are objectively good. All right, Lewis is now going to give a little caveat here about why he is quoting these various biblical passages. In order to avoid misunderstanding, I may add that though I myself am a theist and indeed a Christian, I am not here attempting any indirect argument for theism. So he's not trying to claim in this book that the natural law is grounded in God. That's not the point of his book here. I am simply arguing that if we are to have values at all, we must accept the ultimate platitudes of practical reason as having absolute validity. So that's what he's arguing. That's his thesis, that if we are to have values at all, we must recognize them as self-evident truths given to us via our intellectus, our practical reason. It's a further thing than to say that those uh, principles, those values are grounded in God. That's the theistic part that he's talking about. So uh, he's not arguing for theism here, though I have uh, pointed out how that works, how theism works with the natural law in other episodes, but that's not Lewis's argument here. Okay. So to repeat that sentence, I'm simply arguing that if we are to have values at all, we must accept the ultimate platitudes of practical reason as having absolute validity that any attempt having become skeptical about these to reintroduce value lower down on some supposedly more realistic basis is doomed. Realistic, that was that word used to describe that attempt to ground them on, ground the values on uh, the preservation of the species instinct. Whether this position implies a supernatural origin for the Tao is a question I am not here concerned with. Oh, okay. So there he says what I was just saying. Yet how can the modern mind be expected to embrace the conclusion we have reached? This Tao, which it seems we must treat as an absolute is simply a phenomenon like any other, the reflection upon the minds of our ancestors of the agricultural rhythm in which they lived, or even of their physiology. We know already in principle how such things are produced. Soon we shall know in detail. Eventually we shall be able to produce them at will. Of course, while we did not know how minds were made, we accepted this mental furniture as a datum, even as a master, but many things in nature, which were once our masters, have become our servants. Why not this? Why must our conquest of nature stop short in stupid reverence before this final and toughest bit of nature, which has hitherto been called the conscience of man? So now we're into that part that I opened this episode with. And thus far in that chunk that I just read, Lewis is pointing out that historically man has accepted the Tao, the natural law, as something that was given to him as a self-evident truth that he perceived with his mind. But then Lewis goes on to talk about this issue of conquering nature. And he's saying that uh, if we, if we try to conquer man's mind, uh, the conscience of man, if we try to get to the the point where we uh, try to materialize it and break it down into a merely material phenomenon, then that conquest will be an attempt to strip the Tao out of us. Because the issue here is that once we know 
how it operates, how man uh, perceives these self-evident truths or supposedly self-evident truths. Once we know where that stuff comes from in our brain, then the people in power can reproduce that and instill the principles that they desire rather than those things that were self-evident truths. Because if it is at that level where uh, they are now the manufacturers of this artificial Tao, then there was no objective Tao to begin with. And that, that's what Lewis is saying. You're going to get to this point where you're going to deteriorate the human being just to this material object, and then it'll be purely controlled by whoever has the power to control it. And so instead of being servants under the natural law, why not become masters of it and now make it what we want it to be? And so Lewis's warning here is that is what it looks like to try and get outside of the Tao. That is the vision of the future if that is what we are going to try and do. He goes on to say, you threaten us with some obscure disaster if we step outside it, outside the Tao. But we have been threatened in that way by obscurantists at every step in our advance, and each time the threat has proved false. You say we shall have no values at all if we step outside the Tao. Very well. We shall probably find that we can get on quite comfortably without them. Let us regard all ideas of what we ought to do simply as an interesting psychological survival. Let us step right out of all that and start doing what we like. Let us decide for ourselves what man is to be and make him into that. Not on any ground of imagined value, but because we want him to be such. Having mastered our environment, let us now master ourselves and choose our own destiny. So that is the vision of stepping outside the Tao. It is a very man-centric vision. Let us not be you know, bound down by anything beyond ourselves, anything that transcends humanity, anything from which then we can say we are the servants of this. No, we are the masters of everything. We are gods. That is the vision here. And of course, the reality of this uh, vision, if carried out, is that it's only a couple or eventually maybe just one person who ends up in that position where they now essentially take God's place. It's not all of us are empowered. It's that one person is empowered and the rest of us become slaves to whatever the uh, artificial Tao that that particular person or group of persons, the elect, the elites, whatever they set up as the new artificial Tao. And Lewis illustrates all of this in that dystopian novel, That Hideous Strength, which is the counterpart to Abolition of Man. Uh, and I've talked somewhat about that already, but I'm going to now go to an essay of his that is also related to That Hideous Strength that fleshes out this bit about uh, this attempt to step outside the Tao a bit more. And this is called a reply to Professor Haldane, who is a Marxist who is critiquing Lewis's That Hideous Strength. One of the highest up leaders within the NICE, the evil organization that is in power in That Hideous Strength, um, is a guy named Frost. And Lewis, in his a reply to Professor Haldane, is defending like why he paints Frost in the light that he does in the novel. And he says that uh, Frost is the ideal point at which certain lines of tendency 
already observable will meet if produced. Okay, so you don't have to worry too much about who Frost is at this point, uh, but these two lines, these two tendencies, Lewis is saying that these two lines, if they come together, they produce ultimately a character like Frost. And these two tendencies are things taking place in our world today. And these two things are uh, the stuff that I'm about to read here. The first of these tendencies is the growing exaltation of the collective and the growing indifference to persons. The philosophical sources are probably in Rousseau and Hegel, but the general character of modern life with its huge impersonal organizations may be more potent than any philosophy. Okay, so that's tendency number one, the growing exaltation of the collective and the growing indifference to persons. And I'm just going to leave aside for now Rousseau and Hegel. Uh, Hegel is going to feature big time in a later book I'm going to cover, uh, probably in the same season one. All right, but now to the uh, second tendency here. Secondly, we have the emergence of the party in the modern sense, the fascist, Nazis, or communist. What distinguishes this from the political parties of the 19th century is the belief of its members that they are not merely trying to carry out a program, but are obeying an impersonal force. That nature, or evolution, or dialectic, or the race, is carrying them on. So those are all capitalized. Nature, evolution, dialectic, race. Those things are all capitalized. That is the impersonal force that is carrying them on. This tends to be accompanied by two beliefs which cannot, so far as I see, be reconciled in logic, but which blend very easily on the emotional level. The belief that the process which the party embodies is inevitable, and the belief that the forwarding of this process is the supreme duty and abrogates all ordinary moral laws. This inevitability thing, that is historicism, that's Hegel big time, that idea that um, it is inevitably going to come about that mankind is progressing. That's why all these parties were called progressives. All right, in this state of mind, men can become devil worshippers in the sense that they can now honor as well as obey their own vices. So Frost, in the novel That Hideous Strength, Lewis describes him as a devil worshiper. And it is in that sense in which he is a devil worshiper, in that he is uh, honoring as well as obeying his own vices. That That's what Lewis means by calling Frost a devil worshiper. And he's defending that idea here about Frost being such against Professor Haldane. All men at times obey their vices, but it is when cruelty, envy, and lust of power appear as the commands of a great super-personal force that they can be exercised with self-approval. The first symptom is in language. So the first symptom that this uh, evil process is taking place is in language. When to kill becomes to liquidate, the process has begun. The pseudo-scientific word disinfects the thing of blood and tears, or pity and shame, and mercy itself can be regarded as a sort of untidiness. Now think about how much these two tendencies uh, apply to our own current time. That first tendency, the growing exaltation of the collective and the growing indifference to persons. That is exactly what we see with all these identity categories that we are placed in simply because of uh, these extrinsic characteristics to us like our, our gender or our race, our size, all these different attributes to us. Uh, we are collectively grouped into these things. And that is where 
than we are to find our identity and are therefore either deemed oppressors or oppressed because of that category that we were placed in because of those attributes. And then that second tendency is that idea that we are obeying an impersonal force and that impersonal force that we are obeying today is equity, capital E equity. And we are to forward that process, um, that equitable process, that that is the supreme duty. And therefore it abrogates all ordinary moral laws, including the moral laws that come from truly being equitable. This is a case where the word equity is being abused, which Lewis himself there points out. he says, when to kill becomes to liquidate, the process has begun. That is the same phenomenon we see today when equity becomes inequity. The process has begun. We're at the point where uh, to be equitable, as it's now been defined, you must be inequitable because equity means justice according to natural law or right and freedom from bias or favoritism. But as we hear the word used today, it requires that you do the opposite of those things. You do not uh, pursue justice according to natural law, right? The Tao, you do not do that. And you must show bias and favoritism. So these two tendencies have really come to a head in our own time. And Lewis was very prophetic in the abolition of man and in that hideous strength. And because we would be wise to learn from abolition of man and that hideous strength, I think it's useful to apply our own context to some of these fundamental lessons as we go, as I just did at the closing of this episode. So now think of the name Frost itself. There's a reason Lewis calls him that. Frost it makes us think of to be cold, uh, the idea of something frozen, it's chilled. And that's what Frost is because he is standing outside the Tao, the natural law. He is cold to it. And he is a great illustration of those two modern tendencies when they come together and meet. Frost exalts the collective, and therefore he has this indifference to individual persons. And he also uh, believes that what he is doing is the good because he is guided by that impersonal force uh, in this case, with Frost, it's the impersonal force that technology has come about to the point where man can now alter humanity in a fundamental way so that the future humans, if we can call them that, will now be created in man's image rather than something else. And it's actually going to be uh, in the image of a couple people like Frost and Wither, a couple of these people that are high up in the nice. And so because Frost thinks that uh, forwarding that process of this new creation is the ultimate, the supreme duty, uh, therefore it abrogates, it cancels out the traditional morality, the natural law. And so he is then in a position where uh, he is willing and even uh, he thinks he must do whatever it takes to bring about that uh, future for humanity that he has envisioned. And he will therefore even honor these things that were formerly considered vices. Um, he will now honor those because he knows what is best. And he is so driven by that vision that he will bring it about at any cost whatsoever. 
And of course, this makes him cold to morality and therefore cold to his fellow man as well. So like I said, there's a reason that Lewis called him Frost. And now think that that same frosty tendency is present with us as well, where we have that growing exaltation of the collective uh, and being cold towards individual persons and the uh, impersonal force driving us on that is telling us we have to bring this thing about at all cost, even if it uh, defies morality, that impersonal force for us today is equity. And that word itself, as I already explained, is a great example of abusing language. So this is just kind of wrapping it all up that it is all there in Lewis's character of Frost. And Lewis had seen these Frost-like characters in his own time uh, with the different progressive movements throughout Europe and the U.S. And I'm simply pointing out that that same tendency, those same tendencies that created those real Frost-like characters are rising once again. The first symptom is in language, and boy do we see that. And that brings us to the last paragraph of chapter two that I haven't read yet. And Lewis opens it by saying that it is a very possible position that um, these Frost-like characters will come about, that they will seek to master humanity to then create them as they desire. He says that is a very possible position. And those who hold it, guys like Frost, and those who hold it cannot be accused of self-contradiction like the half-hearted skeptics who still hope to find real values when they have debunked the traditional ones. This is the rejection of the concept of value altogether. So at least it is honest. It is not this you know, half-hearted attempt where you're just debunking traditional values and then saying, well, I, I think we'll actually you know, find the real ones, those, those hidden ones in something like the preservation of the species. No, it's, it's not that. This is at least honest. In the last line, it says, I shall need another lecture to consider it. So that is now what we will get into with chapter three, where we'll see more of what this looks like to reject the concept of value altogether, where we'll get deeper into this frost-like character and what that looks like. If you like the show, please leave me a five-star review. And if you want to ask a question, you can find me at menwchests on Twitter. You can leave me a question there. I was thinking I would have time to get to one this week, but I didn't. So hopefully next week. As a king governs by his executive, so reason and man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it is by this middle element that man is man, for by his intellect he is mere spirit, and by his appetite mere animal. See you next week.